So, what's the best Bible translation? Shout it. Yeah. NRSV. Okay. Anybody else? Oh, we're voting now. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to write the names up here. I don't think I will tally them. we got to have a fight here. I like the message. Anybody in King? NIV. Wow, I hear voices now. NIV? NIV. Okay, in KJV. In KJV, okay. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're getting close. Is it time for a rumble? NASB. <laughs> NASB? Okay. Anybody else? LSMFG. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm so glad you left it. Sounds like a, a counselor or a therapy sort of thing. The Linux was the one that NLT. NLT. Okay. okay. Anybody else? All right. Well, this is a pretty good list. These are, uh, I think, the most common ones, and they're actually the ones that I was going to highlight today. So I'm glad that we generated it from the group here. Um, so there are, there's kind of a continuum, and you'll see the, the printout at your table there. You're welcome to take those with you. I only did a couple per table. Um, but you can see where some of these fall on that line. I'll go ahead and put a line up here just for discussion's sake. Um, but we'll talk about some of the features on there. So over, way over here, you see there's an arrow. This means it's a continuum. But when you get over here with message as the most free form, the most paraphrase, you're like, I don't know what could get further over here. But Book of, book of God. Oh, what's that? It's super paraphrase. Beyond, beyond the message <laughs> right. with you. I'll leave a little arrow up there. That's great. Um, so what does that mean, paraphrase? Uh, what does it mean that it's uh, the opposite of that would be word for word? Um, so word for word, paraphrase. I'll start with word for word. That means that you're looking at the forms of the words in Greek or Hebrew, and you're saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to look to see what that word means, and then I'm going to put that English word on the page, and I'm going to follow pretty closely the word order uh, of the original language. Um, if you did that exclusively, if you exclusively, exclusively followed the, the word order of the original languages, um, Sometimes you'd end up with gibberish. Other times it would just be really clunky. There are a few times, I think maybe especially in the writings of John, where his sentences are pretty simple, they're not overly uh, complex and flowery. Um, you could probably translate, like First John, pretty straightforward and come out with good English sentences. But there are other books where uh, they're doing a lot of things that are perfectly beautiful for Hebrew or perfectly beautiful for Greek that would just make no sense for us. And so the unfortunate thing is, um, I was hoping for more fisticuffs this morning because, no, actually I wasn't. I'm really thankful for round tables. We don't do fisticuffs very well. Um, <laughs> but there are people out there who are on a 
crusade or a tirade or something about how this translation is the best, and I don't know how you pagans out there could tolerate the NIV or something like that. Um, and so I just wanted to share some insights on what Bible translation is so that you can have personal benefit from it, but you can also talk to other people. Not that you need to go out and evangelize or anything like that, but if somebody's coming and giving you their tirade about that awful Bible translation, you can say, well, no, actually, it's like this. Uh, so this is kind of a tool to empower you uh, for conversation and then for your own choice of Bible translation. I have a question. Yep. When you talk about word for word, are the translators taking into account the meaning? Because words can have different meanings. <laughs> <laughs> so Heretic. <laughs> Heretic. <laughs> Very good. Bands. <laughs> yes, he is in band. So, so, I mean, so when they're doing word for word, is it just they're just plugging in the word, or do they take into account the meaning, the definition? It would be uncharitable and probably unfair for me to say that they don't take into account the meaning. But I think that they give the translators who do word for word translation are probably thinking. Okay, what does this mean? And then they'll look at the words and they'll put them on the page, kind of like that goes a step too far in the incomprehensible direction. So let's make it massage it just a little bit, and they get it to a threshold where it's kind of okay, I think, because they feel that they need to be faithful to the original. And that's another question entirely. What does it mean to be faithful to the original? We can talk some more about that. Um, but I don't think that they. I think it's first-year Greek students when they're told, okay, let's translate this sentence or something like that. They're going to be the ones who can't really draw the meaning up and out of the Greek sentence and kind of put it in their head and put it into English. They have to actually go word by word, and it's really clunky and really awful. Or clunkful is almost came out. John, is one of the things, and maybe you're coming with this, word for word, reason I kind of push back when I've read some word for word translations is, and I, I mean, I speak about Spanish to set up semi-fluent in that, and I know that, you know, things are arranged differently in different languages, but also, do people who are really wedded to the word for word camp, do, do they not think of language as dynamic or is it static? You know what I'm saying? If it meant that then it means it now, but maybe it doesn't mean it now. I would say that there's probably very strong crossover between language is language is language, uh, and it doesn't ever change. Uh, and the people who would say word for word. Um, I think it takes someone realizing that language is, maybe this is a good way to put it. Uh, I have this little layer in my notes, but this is a good time to say it. Um, if you think, and I'm not going to accuse anybody or try to make anybody feel bad, but if you think that you have English, Spanish, and French. I know French and Spanish are quite similar, but let's just throw those out there. Um, and you think that they all just have different words to do the same thing, then you're sadly mistaken about language. Um, like if you think you can take uh, what is your name and put that into Spanish or French, they're going to say, hmm, you obviously aren't a native speaker. And it's a, maybe an even more, a, a bigger point when we pull it back into English, because like, como se llama, como se llama usted, however you want to say it. Uh, in Spanish, it would be something like, how are you called, or how do you call yourself? If somebody 
comes up and shake your hand and say, how do you call yourself? You're like, what planet are you from? Uh, or you may be kind and generous and say, oh, you're clearly not a native English speaker. And then you might start a conversation and it's gonna be awkward and stilted because you don't understand the structure of each other's grammar. Um, so that's, that's a simple example, but absolutely relevant here because word-for-word -word translations tend to go with the how, how you self are called or how do you call yourself. Uh, more fluent translations, like you were talking about, Lisa, they look at the, the text and they say, what does this text mean? And you know, they kind of put it in the operating memory without really uh, meditating or what's the right word, fixating, without fixating on the Greek for the New Testament. They bring it up into operating memory. They say, how can I generate this into fluent, fluid, beautiful English? And then they put that down on the page. And then they go back to the Greek and say, is this a faithful translation? Did I get all the bits and nuances of meaning from the Greek into the English? And so there's this back and forth. And if they say, we missed this word here, you know, in the English, we missed what the Greek is saying. We're going to come back and say, how can we get that bit of meaning into the English and make it sound good? Andy? So everything you're saying moves you from word to word towards paraphrase. Now, there's some great marketing language out there for this. <laughs> um, so, yes, now paraphrase. Let's um, kind of set the other bound over here. Uh, paraphrase would be, I'm trying to think. Um, think about the message. Um, I think the NIV says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the message is something like um, God took a body and moved in the neighborhood, or something like that. And so there's something that's really amazing and gripping when you get over here into this area where moving into the neighborhood, like that means something. Like, welcome on us. Like, come on, let's start the Gregorian chant. Um, it doesn't mean as much in contemporary English. So. I, would, I want to say that paraphrases actually have a, a really big place, or, or some of the that are closer to paraphrase, uh, because they, people have done hard work to try to put it in language that kind of sparks our hearts and makes our hearts alive. Uh, personal testimonial. Uh, so I should probably say I work for the organization that uh, holds the copyright for and stewards the NIV, so I'm an NIV fanboy. Um, I actually think that it's a really good translation. Uh, but, so you know the colors that are coming from up here. I'm an NIV guy. Um, but I was at a Sunday school class, and somebody had the decency to put the passage from Ephesians in both the NIV and the NLT. I'd memorized part of this passage in the NIV, and I, I had, was it an emotional or a spiritual experience? I was like, wow, this NLT rendering, it, I feel it. Like, it's alive! And that could be because I had studied the NIV before, and maybe it had become a little bit stale, maybe? I don't want to be uncharitable to it, but um, reading it in a different translation with a little bit more attention to contemporary language, wow, it really made it come alive. So um, we have these up here. We will put the uh, NASB over here, closer to the word for word. Um, then we have, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, probably NKJV, 
probably in the NRSV, and they probably cluster in little different ways here, in the NIV, in the NLT. And so that story I just told, um, with the NLT coming alive, it's because it was probably translated wholesale more recently than the NIV was, and it was also <coughs> looking to get more contemporary words and contemporary phrases in there. So, let's see. I want to talk about idioms. Does everybody know what an idiom is? Um, it's a kind of a little turn of phrase. Uh, you take words that mean one thing, and then you start using them in a little bit of a different way, and suddenly, now for most of the culture, uh, that phrase itself takes on a different meaning entirely. But if you go and you look up the, the two or three words within that phrase, that idiom, look it up in the dictionary and you're like, that makes absolutely no sense. Um, it's kind of like using the word cool for hip or see there's another kind of, any, anything that you um, come up with to try to describe what cool means in the, you know, the everyday, like, wow, that's cool sense, is probably also another idiom. Like, what do you come up with? It's maybe like stylish or uh, fashionable. Uh, it's fashionable to look that way, so you're dressed cool. It's dope. It's dope, yeah, that's dope. That's uh, sick. Yeah, that's sick, that's bad. What, good is now bad? And this is where, who said it about the, uh, the people who say languages never change? You know when they have teenagers and the kids come home and say, wow, that's bad. Do you mean that's good? That's got to drive them crazy. Like, actual use of language has to drive people crazy who say language never changes. That what it means is what it will always mean, is always meant. Anyway. Um, so, as you get over into the paraphrase, um, that's when you start to see more idioms in English. Now, it's really <coughs> funny because the Hebrews were not sitting there thinking, like, we're going to write down God's holy, eternal word now. And we need to make sure that it's all literal language. No, it was pretty florid. They used a lot of idioms, a lot of metaphors. I mean, for goodness sake, the Psalms. Um, some translator friends talk about the, the Psalms are just so difficult to translate. Like, the way Hebrew works is you could maybe have two words, and in English it'll be about eight or nine. And it's this really earthy image that emerges from these two words because uh, it's marked for uh, you know, who is doing the action. There's a little bit on the end of the word that says he, and you can tell the, the time of the action uh, within the same word and all that. But anyway, um, sometimes these things are just almost impossible to come up with a, a meaning for them. In fact, that's what some of the footnotes in the NIV say is, the meaning for this Hebrew phrase is uncertain. And so they're like, we're giving it our best shot here, guys. <laughs> uh, trying to figure out from context what it could have meant. Um, so the point there is, it's either highly metaphorical in Hebrew, or it's a, an idiom. Uh, let me think for a second. When, we're, we're gonna go racy here. Um, when it talks in Hebrew, more often than not, when it says uncovered someone's feet, uh, it's actually talking about their genitalia. And how are we supposed to know that? You're not. It's dirty. You're not supposed to know about that. Did you not say that, though? Pardon? 
What did you say? You do now. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> <But, laughs> the first time I heard that, I was like, what? Yeah. And so, I mean, think about it in English. Maybe not, don't think about that in English, but um, <laughs> think of this kind of topic or this, this world of meaning and function uh, in English. We, we do this stuff all the time. We have so many euphemisms for so many things. And think 2,000, 3,000 years from now, if we had some sacred <coughs> scripture uh, that was generated today and was calling good things bad and sick and all that, um, people would have the worst time trying to say, oh, they actually thought this was good because they said it was bad. And I guarantee in an earthy, agrarian society uh, back in ancient Israel, they were doing similar stuff. Uh, so it does take a lot of care and uh, attention to figure out what the, the original text is saying. And just on the earthy, dirty parts of the thing, my observation is that the translators were always very, very committed, generally very conservative Christians right. who didn't want that kind of language in the Bible. Yeah. So apart from even just taking a taking an idiom and making it a modern idiom, they took a dirty idiom and made it into a clean idiom. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the dirtiest verse in the Bible, and I won't mention which one it Thank is, you, I both know. <laughs> but, but if you read it in the different translations, you can see how they, the NIV does a great job, apparently. Um, <laughs> but the rest of them, the King James Version, basically just skips it all together. Yeah. Because they, they don't want it in. Yeah. Yes, there are dirty verses in the Bible. But, yeah. Um, you said you start with translators. When you think about um, trans uh, Bible translators around the world and what they've done throughout history, there was always an intent first. Maybe not always cleaning up, but they had to have the intent, like, I really want them to know what this sacrifice means. And so mm -hmm. I'm going to use a couple of words from the language that you have that we have to learn first to yeah. figure out how to do that. I think another example is like during the Beijing Olympics, um, the Chinese decided to have a lot of things translated, retranslated again. Like for instance, you didn't want somebody to go to a restaurant and see lion's head soup. <laughs> like that was an idiom, something that meant something that never was a lion's head. That right. was something, and it had been a really long time since China was so open that people would always be able to tell, like, oh, I know what that means. That's fascinating. Thanks for bringing that up. So uh, Mary was just talking about the sacrificial system and how they were doing things to animals that most of us have no concept of what they were doing to these animals. And so actually had to, English readers have to get some education on what was actually going on there. Um, and so the other point is, I really appreciate that example of, in China, lion's head soup. Uh, when the world came to Beijing for the Olympics, they were like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't call it lion's head soup, because who knows, those crazy Americans might think we actually go kill lions and eat head soup. Uh, but it's something, we do this all the time too. Uh, we come up with some really... Go to the bathroom and spend a penny in England. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Go to the bathroom and spend a penny in England. That's that's really funny. Uh, pay toilets, right? Yeah. Is that 
cards? Yeah. Um, and so they just kept something from 50 or more years ago and keep saying it, because it's a good euphemism for going to the bathroom. Um, but with lion's head soup. Uh, I mean, that's a really good image. Like, if you eat this soup, you might have the courage of a lion. You know, they're ascribing meaning to the soup or they're giving something, uh, a property to the soup. That's really amazing, come eat this soup. Uh, that's great marketing. But when you have people who add a little bit more rigid, literal worldview coming in, uh, maybe it's a good idea to say what is actually in the soup. <laughs> uh, so thank you for that example. Um, let's see. Artificial chemical soup. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, so we've, we've got the, this idea of the word-for-word word and the, the paraphrase. Um, I think what translations tend to do, let's see if we can do this here. Um, so things like the NASB, they're probably going to go with the word-for-word word and let you swim off into the deep ocean of idiom. And it's a Hebrew idiom with English words. And so you got to, it's going to be a tough, Tough paddling to, <laughs> to figure that out. You come over here to NRSV and NIV, they are probably going to take idioms or metaphors from Hebrew and put them into English in the literal sense. So they're going to say, what's the meaning of the metaphor? Pull that literal meaning into English. Sure. So I don't know if the NASB actually says this. They might have taken some steps over this direction. But um, God's nose was hot. Anybody? Not the pastor? <laughs> it means he's angry. So uh, when somebody, Andy, when you got angry yesterday, did you know your nose was hot? <laughs> but anyway, that's the way almost exclusively that the, the Hebrews talked about. When someone gets angry, their, their nose would get hot. And I can't remember the exact words, but if they were really, really angry, it's something like their nose was very hot with fire or something like that. And what does that even mean? So the NASB might take a step this direction, but the NIV says uh, that God was hot with anger. Now the question is, this is, this is where it gets to that point that you were saying about uh, language changing. We've had hot with anger in our culture for so many generations because of the translation of the Hebrew idiom that hot with anger, we kind of think in those terms. Um, he's got a fiery temper. These are live metaphors today. Now, if I'm super angry, does that literally mean that I catch on fire? Like maybe blood runs in my head and my face gets hot, maybe. But that's the extent of it. It doesn't actually involve heat and it doesn't actually involve fire. But at some point, probably going all the way back to the KJV, they were like, what do we do with this? Okay, uh, God was hot with anger. And because it seeped into our culture so much, you get down to today, and the NIV doing contemporary translation, it still makes sense. But it wouldn't have been a native English video. Yeah. So if I'm a real literalist, though, then what I'm going to say is, whoa, God has a nose. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going, to, I'm going to pull that out of there. And then somebody says, well, we don't know if God has a nose. I don't know what it says right here. Yeah, God it says all over the first time. God, God has a nose. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you may have seen uh, the pictures of the bride and the Song of Solomon, like hysterical 
um, you know, the mound of wheat and the goblet of wine. That gets a little this way too, but so we won't go there. Um, but anyway, you see that um, we aren't, okay, this is real-time processing. Word for word probably takes the words and puts them in English and keeps the metaphor or the idiom the way that it was, and it's probably incomprehensible. The NIV type will bring it into English as the literal thing. They're talking about anger. When you get over here to the message, they take the literal meaning from the Hebrew metaphor, pull the meaning over into English, and then re-encode it into an English metaphor. Or an English idiom. So this is nose was hot or hot with anger. This was very angry, and this is flying off the handle. What does that even mean? Let's translate that back into Hebrew. <laughs> um, so you see, flying off the handle makes no sense, but it means the person's really angry. Go. But part of what's going on is that on, as you go farther left, the larger the committees are. It's not just one translator. Yeah. The farther you go to the right you tend to get fewer and fewer people involved, mm -hmm. and so it's uh, less processed. It does to some, but there's another dynamic where you're going, you get some people that'll say, you don't know anything because you don't know Greek, Hebrew, or Arabic, and you're just going, what? And that's a problem, too. Yeah, that is a fantastic point. Um, I think when you're trying to get into an idiom, so I've heard, heard the CBT discussing some NIV stuff, uh, and my favorite example was, why is this my favorite example? Cursed is everyone who was on a tree. Um, it's terrible. Um, but somebody sensitively picked up that hung on a tree for some parts of the English speakership, whoever speaks English, um, that could be terrifying because lynching. Um, and so thank God that the NIV committee had the sensitivity to say, Maybe we ought to figure out a different way to say that. So, you know, there's impaled on a pole. Well, in English, a pole is uh, probably uh, either wood, a big timber for a telephone pole, or uh, a flagpole, so it's a cylindrical shape, very tall, much taller than it is, big around, uh, probably metal. Um, and then you could go with something like steak. Well, that probably is more like what this place, this thing was. It's got a sharp point on it. And a stake to us, you know, it's something that you drive into the ground. Um, so anyway, I, we don't have time to go into all of it. But uh, I will say that there were committee members who were going to homedepot.com and saying, is there a stake that's ever bigger than 10 feet? Because when you look in Esther, the thing's like 90 feet tall or something like that. You know, Haman constructs this thing for Mordecai to kill him and impale his body on this pole. And it's, it's not a gallows. That's something that made sense in, uh, in English society 400 years ago. Uh, they didn't impale people on stakes. But then as they uh, began to see pictures uh, from Assyria and different places, they were like, oh, wait. This is, the words mean suspending a body above the ground. The way the Assyrians suspended bodies above the ground was to impale them on a stake. And the way that English people 400 years ago 
suspended bodies above the ground was with a noose, and it was a hanging. Um, so, and that would mean gallows, which is an old translation in Esther. So anyway, you see some of the complexities here. Um, because the NIV strives to be a global translation, they turn to the guy from India and say, does steak mean that to you? Well, no, okay, back to the drawing board. And so they're extremely careful to try to bring this to as broad a readership as possible, um, paying attention to all the little nuances underneath. I, uh, yes, go ahead. Just real quick, you said NIV was worldwide? Mm -hmm. Because how, that's impossible. I it mean, is. when I, I <laughs> it's, it's American. Yeah. I mean, don't you consider it American translation? It's yeah. not a... Well, they do have two dialects. There, there's a UK NIV and a US NIV. Oh, but okay. they well, that, that yeah. covers a lot of countries. Yeah, and I would say that most of the countries like Australia, New Zealand, India, Canada, are probably more inclined to use the UK. Okay. Yeah. And um, when the NIV was trying to make a gender-sensitive one in America, leaders whose names I won't mention went nuts at the thought well, that went nuts. Yeah, we had to buy the contraband. We had a person in England send me one because they were willing to print the NIV with gender-sensitive language, but America was not for, what, another two years? Longer, probably longer than that. It's funny, on here it says NIVI uh, right there in the center. And this one charitably lumps them all together. Um, I saw another chart as I was looking through these things last night um, that said that the NIVI was a gender-neutral Bible, which, and then they had a separate thing that said uh, <coughs> it doesn't make God's gender neutral, but it does so for humans, but it does so for man, it actually said. Um, and I was like, no, that's not what the NIVI is. The NIVI is a straight NIV, but it's kind of a precursor to the, today's NIV. So anyway, um, I wanted to have a a little bit of time at the tables to talk about the, the scripture handout. So I was having trouble finding a, a good place that illustrated all these things, but um, I want you to read through from the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. Um, sorry, verse 4 ends in the middle of the sentence because verse 5, is, everybody says the same thing. So just read through these and talk about how each one feels a little different. Um, like what, What's the feeling that you get from the different types of translation? Sorry for the short discussion time. Uh, this is probably a topic that uh, we bit off more than we could chew in just one day. I think there could be a series on this. Uh, if people want that, we could work on that. But um, I think we've done a good job of covering a lot of the uh, interesting things about translation. I want to ask, uh, does anybody have any particular insights from reading the translations the different way? Okay, cool. Just the one. Okay. At the end of the, fir at the, end of the first paragraph of each of them, except for NLT, it says, Us, unless you believed in vain. Okay? NLT says, unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. To me, that is totally different. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, that's believing in something different than believing in faith. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. That's good. Anybody else? I was struck. I was struck by the, to me, the stark difference between brothers 
and then brothers and sisters. So we were we were discussing that. So uh, I personally just I guess out of principle I want to go with the, with the, the inclusive brothers and sisters. That's really good. Anybody else? I don't see any of that hand. Cool. Well, thanks for sharing those. Um, I wanted to, a question came up about the KJV. Uh, what on earth is up with the KJV only business? Um, I can't say uh, why people are so virulent, which is funny because that's kind of similar to going viral. Somehow, in the past 50 years, being KJV only went viral, you know, to use uh, phrases that will make no sense to anyone in 3,000 years. Um, but the KJV was done in, the 16, in 1611. That was the initial uh, release of it. Uh, Oxford and Cambridge presses had rights to publish the KJV. It was owned by the Crown, so the Crown would get royalties from the sale of KJVs. Um, but they gave somewhat loose rights to different uh, publishers to update the text. And so there are a few points in history when uh, the, the university presses would update the text. And so the one that we have now was uh, the revision in 1789. And it's hysterical to me when you have people out there on a rampage about 1611, baby. I'm like, here, let me go online, and it's like 1611.org, I think. You can read the actual, sorry, let me rephrase that. You can't actually read what the 1611 text says because it's early, modern, late, middle English. Um, they have different ways of writing letters, and it's just a nightmare. Um, I think it would be safe to say that there's not a person out there actually reading the 1611, unless they're a classics professor. Seriously. Yeah, and so when people say to you that it's the 1611, you need to ask them, are you actually reading the 1611? And they will say, yes, I am. And then you say, go and read your Bible text, and then let's compare online what the 1611 says, and then they'll tell you something about conspiracy theories and blah, 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 whatever. But anyway, it, it is a fruitless discussion, unfortunately. Um, and you know, there are brothers and sisters, uh, but somehow they've been led down a path by people who have very strong opinions and also some really uh, crazy imaginations about making up what different translation teams, how they're Satanists and all that stuff. Um, I don't know why they're working so hard to make everyone read the KJV. Um, it is difficult to understand. It's beautiful in some ways. Uh, but they say that this was God's revelation, basically, um, acting as if there wasn't a Bible text that was written down in Greek 1,600 years before that, and then, of course, the Hebrew further back than that. So it's, it's weird and complicated. Um, anyway, it's, it's interesting that uh, there was a study done. The NIV has been the most popular, widely read, that's part of the marketing, uh, English translation over the last 40 years. Um, the crazy thing is, when you actually do sociological research and do a study and find out what people are reading, it's the, 
I think it's 40% of the population in America is reading, 40% of Bible readers are reading the KJV. They just don't go out and buy KJV Bibles every other year. They have the one that they've been reading for 10, 15, 20 years. So KJV readership is actually way up there. Um, and you think of some of the maybe more rural churches, um, and you think of some of the communities that are very devout. You know, maybe it's an African-American uh, community, somewhat rural. Uh, everybody's reading the KJV. So a lot of America is still reading the KJV. Um, and, you know, if it's changing their lives and forming their community, praise God. I'm not going to uh, berate them for that. One other quick point I wanted to make is... Uh, Sherry? We have some friends that are Mormon, uh-huh. and we were talking about um, the Bible and stuff one day, and I said, don't y'all have a different Bible? And she said, oh no, it's the King James Version. Is that true? Because I think that might be right. Somebody and they go, oh, they put their own stuff in the King James Version. Well, they do have things like Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price. There are some other books that go along with it that they count kind of on par with Scripture. So I think that is true, because Joseph Smith, what would Joseph Smith read? Look at my bracelet. Um, it would have been the KJV, because he was back in the what uh, early 1800s. Um, that was pretty much the only translation available. So uh, a friend told me about some research that he had done. Uh, this guy, different guy, um, said that when a true, let me get this straight, when a Christian community is using a certain translation, they, many uh, communities want to have a translation that has kind of a gravitas, like this sounds like scripture. And so some translation committees will work hard to get that gravitas language. And what that means is use the language of the prior generation. The generation immediately preceding sounds just a little older, a little more authoritative because it's the the language that parents use to shout at their children uh, sounds authoritative. Um, so the crazy thing is, 40 years ago, and let's count 40 years as a generation, 40 years ago, the NIV came out, and it sounded super, super fresh. It lit the church on fire. Again, an idiom that is not literal. Um, but people were so excited because God's word finally spoke to them again. Uh, you know, they never felt it before. Um, but guess what? We're 40 years down the road. Guess what generation, or, you know, guess the feel of the NIV today? It actually has that gravitas. It sounds like a parent's generation speaking. And so if you looked at the NLT and said, oh, that's refreshing. Well, that's probably because it was um, a very strong update of the Living Bible. So the Living Bible was done in the 60s, way off over here. And... Tyndale said, this is a losing battle, Tyndale's the publisher, to try to update the idioms in the Living Bible to today. And you know, over what you mentioned, Bill, about the, the Committee of One for paraphrases. So they said, let's make it more of a bona fide translation. So they pulled it toward this direction uh, and made the NLT, and it's actually a translation. Like they went to the Greek and Hebrew compared it with the kind of the, the ethos or the feel of the method, uh, sorry, the, the living Bible, and made sure that everything was handled back in this direction. And so 
that release happened in the late 90s, in 2003 or four, probably 2005, when I had that experience in Sunday school class. That's probably why it felt so alive to me, is because it was only 10 years old. And so we've been talking with the Committee on Bible Translation about updating, kind of doing a full-style update of the NIV, because otherwise, the NIV is going to be, you know, 100 years from now, it's going to be basically the KJV. So some translation committees, they, they have a philosophy, they call it an evergreen translation philosophy. So they want it to always be alive. They want it to always speak to the, the people that are listening. And so that's why the Committee on Bible Translation meets every year. And they collect proposals from among their membership and some outside proposals. And they consider them every summer. And the ones that pass, they kind of put in a hopper. And when there's an agreement among the, the commercial publishers onto them and Biblica, the copyright holder, and then the translation committee who owns the text, not in a copyright sense, but they have independent authority over the text. When the three groups agree, uh, yes, it's time to do a new version release, then they kind of set the thing in motion. Um, but it, it's funny how it uh, takes a lot of discussion because the publishers, if they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars doing typesetting and proofing on a dozen study Bibles, they're going to be like, hmm, I don't know if it's time to release it just now. <laughs> like, we need to get some more revenues. You know, it, you have to make it make business sense. So anyway, um, that's a, a so curiosity. are you saying it is written, it's just not being released? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. Do, you, so, do they have any idea when or not? Um, there's a video out there with Doug Moo, the chair of the committee, uh, talking about the mid-2020s, but I don't think that's probably going to happen. Um, so one other curious thing. I didn't put ESV up here. Uh, it's funny that no one mentioned ESV. But anyway, that's blogged about and ranted about a lot online. Uh, but the ESV, they have a curious thing. Their initial release was 2001, and then every five years they release the changes but they don't do a new copyright date. They'll say the 2006 text version, the 2011 text version, 2016. And they said that 2016 was going to be the last release date. Anyway, we are coming up on the end of class, and I need to go run to another class. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. Thanks for sending your word through the prophets. Uh, thank you for speaking your word in creation. And we thank you most of all for sending your word, uh, your son, Jesus. And as we tie all of these things together, um, thinking about the creative power of your son and how he works new creation in our hearts, um, we want to take seriously your written word and understand it well. So go with us as we uh, continue to dive into your word and see what work it does in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.